Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a program like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. The bands are more likely to be found in blue states than red states, although there are some red states that have issued bans. The obstacles are political obstacles. There are people who believe that homosexuality is a problem that requires changing, and so they are opposed to bans. I mean, that's one of the, one of the political groups that oppose bans. Uh, usually religious uh, conservative organizations oppose bans. Science is not necessarily the determining factor in how politics get decided. We do know that attitudes toward homosexuality are changing. The more people are comfortable with the idea of gay rights, the less likely they are to support the idea of conversion therapy. There are groups in the United States where, you know, homosexuality still is considered problematic, and uh, these are not necessarily groups that are interested in the medical profession's view or science's views on the subject, because their book of reference is Leviticus. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Sarah. On this edition of Outcasting, we continue our exploration of conversion therapy and views of homosexuality in the psychiatric and medical professions. Homosexuality used to be defined as a mental disorder, and many psychiatrists used to practice conversion therapy. The practice of trying to change someone's sexuality from gay or bisexual to straight. This practice is now widely discredited within the medical and mental health professions. However, it still exists throughout the country, now usually associated with religious institutions rather than medical institutions. What is the history of the practices and ideas? How have they changed over time? And where are we now? On this edition, Outcaster Andrew continues his conversation with Dr. Jack Drescher, a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City. He has been working with LGBTQ patients for over 30 years and writing about conversion therapy for over 20 years. This is the second part of a two-part interview. When we left off last time, Andrew and Dr. Drescher were talking about a controversial study done by the psychiatrist Robert Spitzer on whether a person's sexuality could be changed. We pick up in the middle of that discussion. So what effect did this study have on the political conversation around sexuality, conversion therapy, or the ex-gay movement? Well, Dr. Spitzer, unfortunately, allowed his name to be used by people who were against gay rights, because that's really who was interested in conversion therapies. And so what happened was that they tried to use the study to make the case that you shouldn't give people gay rights because if people can change their sexual orientation, there's no reason to give them gay rights because it's not intrinsic to who people are, like race, for example, but something that people choose. That was the arguments being made then. So for an example, he presented his study in May of 2001 at the American Psychiatric Association meeting in New Orleans. It was a major international story, his presentation, which the media played as Dr. Spitzer has changed his mind. When in fact he hadn't changed his mind because Dr. Spitzer always believed people should be allowed to try and change their sexual orientation. He had not changed his mind about that, but he had come out on the side of the conversion therapy movement. 
So what happened was that in April then of 2001, I got a uh, email from a Finnish sociologist I know because the Finnish parliament was debating whether or not to pass civil unions for gay people, uh, which was the pre-marriage uh, legal arrangements. And somebody got up in the Finnish parliament and said, we should not be passing civil unions because a very prominent American psychiatrist has just come out with a study showing that people can change. So people tried to use the study in that way. Dr. Spitzer, to his credit, when he was notified of what was going on in the Finnish parliament, wrote a letter to the, the major Finnish newspaper saying what his study showed, but that he supported civil unions for gay people and that his study shouldn't be used in that way. But people continue to try and use it in that way for political purposes. So what is the current scientific consensus on Robert Spitzer's study? I don't know if there's a current scientific consensus. He repudiated his own study. It's just a part of history now. So currently, are there medical professionals in the U.S. who practice conversion therapy or who believe that sexuality is changeable? I think there are, but if they are, they are really outliers in the medical profession and in the psychiatric profession because since homosexuality has not been considered an illness for 45 years, you don't learn how to change homosexuality in your training program. No reputable training program in psychiatry, psychology, social work, or nursing teaches people how to change homosexuality. So if you're someone who wants to learn how to do that, you have to learn it on the streets. So do these conversion therapy providers usually have any medical background or qualifications? Well, nobody's keeping tabs on them. My sense is that the majority of them are not medical providers. They're not licensed clinicians. Uh, many of them are religious uh, pastoral counselors. Some of them are people who call themselves ex-gay themselves. Many of them call themselves life coaches. There was a lawsuit against a conversion therapy group in New Jersey that some former clients and the parents of a former client who had paid for the treatment sued this organization for consumer fraud. And the two people named in the suit, one was a disbarred lawyer and the other one was someone with no license who called himself a life coach. So you get a lot of sketchy characters in this industry. So are the methods or practices in modern conversion therapy similar or different from what the medical profession used to do? I'm not entirely sure because I don't think there's anybody who's tabulating what they're doing. In I mean, I only know what I read in the papers or what I see in a film about what people have been subject to. So some of them use some of the old psychoanalytic theories about parenting, which have never been proven, to make the argument that the client's parents are responsible for their being a homosexual. Some of them use the methods and techniques of 12-step programs. They treat homosexuality as if it were an addiction, like alcoholism. Some people do bizarre things. Uh, some of the plaintiffs in the New Jersey case I mentioned, for example, the therapist would have them undress in front of a mirror in, in front of the therapist or have uh, clients at weekend retreats uh, hold each other for what they call non-sexual hugging. There was one conversion therapist on TV who would have clients hit pillows with a tennis racket yelling at their mother. I mean, lots of bizarre stuff. So what psychological effects ha can these practices have on patients? Many of these clients uh, who come for conversion therapies 
are desperate people. Many of them come from religious backgrounds. Many of them come from traditions where they would be condemned if they were to come out within their communities. And so many of them are quite desperate to try and change. And so they are a very vulnerable population that can be taken advantage of by charlatans and quacks. So what have been some of the obstacles to bans on conversion therapy? We would say that, you know, the bans are more likely to be found in blue states than red states, although there are some red states that have issued bans. The obstacles are political obstacles. There are people who believe that homosexuality is a problem that requires changing, and so they are opposed to bans. I mean, that's one of the, one of the political groups that oppose bans. Uh, usually religious uh, conservative organizations oppose bans. There are some professionals who think that the state should not get in the business of what people talk about in therapy, that it's kind of micromanaging the therapy sessions. So not everybody is 100% happy with the idea of a ban because somebody might be having a conversation about sexual orientation that could be misinterpreted as a possible attempt at conversion therapy, putting the clinician at risk. So those are some of the objections to the bans. So are the objections to the bans backed up by any science? This is all politics. <laughs> you, you, do, you do know that science is not necessarily the determining factor in how politics get decided. Right. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> okay, so. Do you know if, um, if these bans, or most of them, prohibit all conversion therapy or just by licensed medical professionals? The bans are all for, that's a very good point. The bans are what I call a very large hammer for a very small nail. The bans are only for minors, and the majority of clients are not minors. The majority of clients are over 18. And the bans are only affect licensed professionals, and the majority of people who engage in these practices are not licensed professionals. Who are they then? People call themselves life coaches, pastoral counselors, people who are who claim to be ex-gay themselves, some of them may go on to get a license eventually. And the bans don't address those? No. So in a scenario that is not covered by a conversion therapy ban, or in a mm -hmm. state that doesn't ban conversion therapy, are there right. scenarios in which the lack of scientific evidence for conversion therapy could be used legally against those providers in, say, a court case? Well, that's what happened in New Jersey. If you look up, the, if you want, to, you could might want to read about the Jonah case. Uh, Jonah stood for Jews offering new alternatives to homosexuality. In the Jonah case, the reason that the lawsuit was started in New Jersey is that New Jersey has some of the strongest consumer protection laws in the country. And the defendants in that case, the, the conversion therapy group, engaged six experts to testify on their behalf. The judge in that case ruled that five of those experts could not testify because he felt that there was no scientific basis for the arguments that they made. So there was a judge who was looking at the science. So say someone sues a conversion therapy provider, I guess it depends on the state as well, but how likely are they to be successful? I have no idea. Again, <laughs> we're, we're outside my area of expertise. Okay. Okay. One of the difficulties that I would say in suing is that the, the client who sues was always a willing participant in the beginning, if it's not a minor. Oh, yeah. So that often makes it difficult for them then to argue that they were abused. Not impossible, but difficult. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program. 
produced by Media for the Public Good in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcaster Andrew is talking with Dr. Jack Drescher about conversion therapy and the views of homosexuality in the medical and mental health professions. Dr. Drescher is a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City. So, sort of based on the fact that we've established that um, at this point, conversion therapy is, you know, has no scientific basis and is not at this point viewed favorably in the medical profession. Just overall, how well does that trickle down to the general population, whether that be in terms of the actual practice of conversion therapy or people's beliefs and understandings of what is actually true? I don't know the answer to that question because uh, I'm not an epidemiologist or a demographer or a sociologist, but we do know that attitudes toward homosexuality are changing. And so uh, the more people are comfortable with the idea of gay rights, the less likely they are to support the idea of conversion therapy. But there are, you know, there are groups in the United States where, you know, homosexuality still is considered problematic. And uh, these are not necessarily groups that are interested in the medical profession's view or science's views on the subject because their book of reference is Leviticus. Getting into your own personal work, in your career, what led you to focus on LGBTQ patients and activism? Well, I came out professionally at the end of medical school in 1979-80 and was openly gay in my training as a psychiatrist. I was involved here in New York City as a resident with a group called Gay and Lesbian Psychiatrists of New York. We used to have educational meetings and social events uh, for people who could not have these educational meetings in their departments. Now you have most of the departments in New York City have these kinds of meetings, but back in the 80s, that was not the case. And when I started my practice, I started uh, after I finished my training in 84, I decided to start private practice in 1985, and people wanted to refer me patients who were looking for openly gay psychiatrists. In 1985, there were maybe three other openly gay psychiatrists in New York City. And so I was in a dilemma because my training in my residency program was very traditional Freudian in the sense that you didn't talk about yourself, you didn't say anything to the patient, so what would you do if the patient knew that you were gay? But I decided that I would take that step and told patients that I was gay. And so I started getting a lot of gay referrals back in the uh, 80s. Have you faced any negative responses or backlash for your work in terms of the LGBTQ community? Well, yes. Um, there is still prejudice against gay people in, uh, in the field. Uh, I don't labor on, on that too much nowadays because I've done very well for myself, but there is prejudice. I was nominated to run for president of the American Psychiatric Association back in 2005, and many of the right-wing religious uh, websites without interviewing me, wrote stories about me, about how it would be a terrible thing if I won the election. And they were right. It would have been a terrible thing for me if I won the election, because I didn't need that job. But uh, <laughs> but uh, people can sometimes say, well, my work doesn't count because I'm gay myself. Some people have said that. One New York Times reporter said, don't you think you're being gay affects your bias and how you talk about homosexuality? And I said, well, that's because heterosexuals have no biases about homosexuality. So, I mean, that's, you know, it's a ridiculous statement. Everybody has biases. 
What kinds of ethical or moral concerns come into play when, for example, parents send their gay children to be cured? Is it considered unethical or immoral to change a child's orientation when he or she is not the one seeking treatment? Well, that's a complex question. Parents have the right to make decisions for their children, but there are limitations. Uh, For example, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe in accepting blood transfusions. But if a child of Jehovah's Witnesses needs a blood transfusion, the state will overrule the parent for the sake of the child and force the child to have a blood transfusion. So if the beliefs of the parents can in some way or another endanger the health and well-being of a child, there is precedent for the state stepping in and trying to protect the interests of the child, which is really, I think, one of the motivations behind these bans on conversion therapies by the state, saying that there are times when the states have to overrule the, the wishes of parents. One of the things that I think that parents need to do if they're not comfortable with the fact that they might have a gay child is they really have to educate themselves about the issue beyond what they're hearing from their anti-gay preacher. I mean, that's really the responsibility of the parent. And so I think just blindly accepting someone's suggestion, even though there's enough evidence out there that people have been harmed by these treatments, I mean, are you really going to expose your own child to quackery? Because if you do, you know, then you might have to live with the consequences of doing that. What evidence exists that attempting conversion therapy is harmful to children? Well, there's evidence existing that it, that it's harmful to adults. I mean, we have anecdotal evidence. And I think the bar is uh, when there's reports of harm, that anecdotal evidence is sufficient reason to give pause. How would you advise parents who might come to seek treatment for their children, or quote-unquote treatment for being gay? Those parents don't come to see me. Is that because of sort of because of they how just, visible your activism is? They can Google me and see where I stand on the issue. What I do get a lot of parents are parents who are, are trying to understand their transgender children who are coming out to them, but that's a different subject for another day. So in contrast to harmful conversion therapy, how can psychoanalytic therapy be used positively for gay people? Well, that's a book I wrote back in 19... 19- 98, my book came out, so uh, called Psychoanalytic Therapy and the Gay Man. There are many aspects of psychoanalytic treatment that have nothing to do with the past history of trying to change people's sexual orientation, but has to do more with psychoanalytic ideas having to do with self-knowledge, self-realization, helping people to get to know themselves better, helping people to get to like themselves better, helping people to have fuller relationships with others. So, you know, psychoanalysis in its most benign form, doesn't have to judge people on the basis of sexual orientation. It can help people live fuller lives as gay people. What have you found are the best ways to help people come to terms with their sexual orientations? Well, that's a a complicated question, I think. (laughs) It's too complicated. I think that's a very complicated question. But, you know, people, if they're in treatment, they can learn to like themselves more. You can teach people to look at some of the um, irrational aspects of their anti-gay beliefs. Because everybody who's gay usually comes in with a certain number of anti-gay feelings and beliefs, even if they're openly gay themselves. So, you know, learning the impact of how we all carry these self-criticisms inside us and how to live with them and not be ruled by them is one way to help people through. 
So how should a mental health professional advise parents who might be seeking a cure for their children who might be gay? Well, the first thing you want parents to know is to, to educate themselves. I said, you know, it's not enough to approach this issue simply from a religious point of view. One needs to learn about what is out there in terms of what's written in, in uh, the, the mental health professions, to learn about the legislation that's going on there, to educate themselves. I mean, if you educate yourselves about these kinds of quote-unquote treatments, you're less likely to want to put your child in the hands of a person who engages in practices that the majority of mental health professionals look down on. If you look at the blogs of these people who practice, you know, all they can do is try and discredit the mainstream mental health profession, saying, you know, they've been taken over by gay activists, for example, as opposed to, you know, the arguments for conversion therapy are not as compelling as the arguments for acceptance. What do you think is important for mental health providers and other medical professionals to know when treating LGBTQ patients? Well, I think they should know something about the lives of gay people. They should not make assumptions about any patient's sexual orientation. I once watched a person being examined for their board certification in psychiatry, and the doctor asked the patient whether the patient was married, and the patient said no, and then didn't pursue any further, and then presented the patient as if he were single, when it was perfectly possible you know, that he was in a relationship with someone to whom he was not married. So uh, unfortunately, people sometimes make assumptions without any knowledge of what the lives of LGBT people look like. And so if you don't know, it's incumbent upon you to learn a little bit more about it if you're going to work with people you know, who are not like you. So how can we further educate the public on the dangers of conversion therapy? We had two movies came out. You have Boy Erased and The Miseducation of Cameron Post, I think is the name of the movie. I haven't seen that one yet. So it, it's finding its way into pop culture, and pop culture is a good way to educate people somewhat on important issues. And finally, in your opinion, what's the most important? what do you think is most important for the general public to know about LGBTQ people? We're as good and bad as everybody else. <laughs> All right. This has been a great conversation. Dr. Jack Drescher, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. You did a great job. This has been part two of our interview with Dr. Jack Drescher, a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City. Both parts are available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. Now... Outcaster Lucas P. talks about experiences he had when two people, for very different reasons, suggested that he should try to go straight. I'm pretty religious, and I grew up Catholic, but when I realized I was gay, I began to stray from my faith because of the anti-LGBTQ teachings of the church. Once, in Sunday school, our teacher told us that any form of homosexual sex, regardless of consent or marital status, was automatically against the Sixth Commandment and subsequently against God. I was already insecure about being gay, and now I started to struggle with my Catholic identity as well. My insecurity came not only from the church I was raised in. From about the age of nine, I was being called a fag by my brother or being made fun of for having too many female friends. At 13, I realized that I actually was gay. It took a lot of personal growth before I was willing to tell my friends and family. I was still nervous, but thankfully they were very supportive. 
Even so, there were a few times when I felt the emptiness and pain that anti-LGBTQ discrimination can cause. After I came out in ninth grade, I became much more confident. I began to search for the religious connection I had lost. I had a really close friend, I'll call her Jane, who was interested in the same things. As our interest in spirituality grew, so did our friendship. Then, one day, she told me she thought we were soulmates. I was shocked. She knew that I was gay, yet she still insisted that we were meant to be. I still believed she had my best interest at heart, but then she started to become more intense. She began to say that God wanted us to be together, that we would be going against the nature of the universe if we didn't get married, that I would be making God upset if I didn't love her. The message that came across was, you being gay is a sin. Jane made 10th grade miserable for me. I tried so hard to suppress being gay, to ignore my interest in men and my feelings. Any time I felt the slightest attraction to a guy, no matter how innocent, I began to feel dirty inside. I would go home and begin to pray or bury myself in some spiritual book with the hope that I could drown out my thoughts. I was hating my identity and my life. Ultimately, I couldn't do it anymore. I cut all ties with her and subsequently with my faith. After I broke away from Jane, I gained much more confidence in being gay, but it took me over a year to go back to religion. Yet, once again, my faith was used as a reason for me to question my sexuality. One Sunday, I went to a Methodist service. Afterward, the pastor led a group discussion on homosexuality and the Bible. The discussion was mostly progressive and constructive, but there was an older woman who was very passionate about following a strict interpretation of the Bible and she was very upset that more and more people were accepting of homosexuals. After the discussion, I confronted her. I told her, my name is Lucas, I'm gay, and I have a strong relationship with God. I said that I was living proof that a gay person could have a developed spiritual life. We started talking. I was expecting her to yell at me for being a filthy sinner, and then I could write her off as a bigot. But that's not how it happened. The first thing she said to me is, God loves you. She went on to explain that God loves all of his children, but that my life choices will put a constant strain on my relationship with him. It made me uncomfortable to hear her minimize my identity to a choice, to a behavior, even to a sin. And then she said it. Have you ever thought about going to therapy? Her mention of conversion therapy brought on an onslaught of vivid images of electroshock therapy, forced sex with prostitutes, and verbal shaming. Yet this woman had been so kind. For a few moments, I thought to myself, maybe she's right. Maybe I am going against God. I might have fallen into the trap of what looked like good intentions and kind words, but I had enough confidence in my gay identity to say no thank you, have a nice day, and leave. For days, I felt empty inside. This woman had attacked not only my sexuality, but also my relationship with God. Through my experiences with Christianity, I learned that conversion therapy and its implications are much more expansive than I thought. Whether it's a teacher explaining how homosexuality is against God, a friend using religious pressure to turn you straight, or a woman suggesting conversion therapy, gay Christians are often bombarded with anti-homosexual messages in and out of their places of worship. But spirituality is important to me, and if anything, all my negative experiences with religion have inspired me to stay faithful and work from within to build greater acceptance for LGBTQ people. Our series on conversion therapy continues next time on Outcasting. 
with the personal story of Sam Britton, who was subjected to conversion therapy and survived. That does it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Alex, Andrew, Dante, Lauren, Lucas P, Lucas V, Max, Nico, Quinn, and Drew. Our executive producer is Mark Sofus. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources. I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.